Hey, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is a show that goes deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the group. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. The show can be seen on YouTube and also at FunkinStuff.net and heard through podcast providers like iTunes and now on Spotify. That's new. Also Google Play and many other leading providers. As always, I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. You'll really enjoy it. I promise you. Also makes a great gift. This episode features musician, composer, producer Bernadette Cooper, founder of the most successful all-female funk R&B band of all time, Climax. Signed to Solar Records in 1980, the group released six albums between 1981 and 1994, although Cooper left after the first four records. A seventh album called Girls in the Band was intended for 1983 release, but was held back as the band switched from Solar to MCA Records. Other Climax band members included Lorena Shelby, Cheryl Cooley, who has also been featured on Truth and Rhythm, Robin Greider, Lynn Malsby, and Joyce Fenderella Irby. It was Climax's third album, 1984's Meeting in the Ladies' Room, that sent them into the stratosphere. In addition to the funky title track, that album also included another floor burner in The Men All Pause. It also had the great ballad I Miss You, which became a pop crossover smash. The platinum certified set went top 10 on the R&B chart and top 20 on the pop chart. The group had the benefit of working with legendary producers, musicians, and songwriters, but also served as mentors. They included Steve Shockley, Otis Stokes, and other members of Lakeside, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis of The Time, and Midnight Stars Reggie and Vincent Calloway. Other notable songs and hits from Climax's Cooper era include Never Underestimate the Power of a Woman, All Fired Up, Wild Girls, Girls Will Be Girls, Heartbreaker, I'm Such a Mess, Multi-Purpose Girl, The Man in My Life, All Turned Out, Sexy, I'd Still Say Yes, Man Size Love, and Divas Need Love Too. In the mid-1980s, Climax became ubiquitous on the radio, in the clubs, and on TV with music videos and in-person appearances. These were fierce women blazing a trail no one else had by playing their own instruments, exhibiting confidence and style to spare, and producing a stream of catchy funk R&B and pop. In all, they notched seven top 20 R&B hits and three top uh, 20 pop. However, by 1986, things were beginning to fracture within the ranks and Cooper flew the coop. Her first post-climax project out of the gate was almost as successful. She put together a three-woman singing group called Madam X, producing, composing, and playing much of the music on their self-titled 1987 debut. That album included the sultry hit, Just That Type of Girl. The sexy and seductive album, which unfortunately would be the only one for Madam X, also included I'm Weak For You and some other electro-funk winners. Cooper resurfaced in 1990 with her sterling soul debut, Drama, according to Bernadette Cooper. Also featuring Chucky Booker, Tina Marie, Amp Fiddler, and an uncredited Lenny Kravitz, 
The set was an outstanding effort packed with superlative funk embellished with modern nuances. It got lost in the corporate music shuffle, was highly recommended. Coincidentally, 1990 was the same year that saw the first release using the climax name that did not include Cooper, and it showed as it did not approach the drama LP. The last Climax studio album dropped in 1994 and featured Cooper on one song, For the Old Dog and You. She otherwise had no involvement in that project. Cooper was then absent from the music industry for the rest of the century and well into the next. She pursued other interests, including the retail clothing business and writing novels, until returning to the stage as Climax featuring Bernadette Cooper. That is one of at least three versions of the band that also include lineups led by Irby and Cooley, which can get confusing out there when you see Climax concerts uh, nowadays. In 2015, Cooper released Last Eve on Earth, Episode 1, Planet Sexy, which tosses out several Climax tropes. And the group's legacy continues to resonate, not only musically, but also culturally, as evident by recent Saturday Night Live parodies. Here in this interview, Cooper shows she still has attitude and moxie to spare, just as she did decades ago as a personality behind Climax's sassy persona. She addresses every aspect of the group's hair story and discusses what comes next. Note that she elected to appear off camera, so if you're watching the video version of this show, you're stuck with my mug. Sorry about that. <laughs> with that, it's time for a meeting in the Truth and Rhythm Room with the originator, Ms. Bernadette Cooper. I'm delighted to welcome to Truth and Rhythm the founder of the most prominent and successful all-female funk, R&B, and pop band of all time. I'm speaking of multi-talented musician, composer, and producer Bernadette Cooper and the group Climax. Bernadette, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. Outstanding, and, and where are you coming to us from today? I'm in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I lived a little, about 10 years in New York, and then I came back, and um, now I'm back. All right, well, of course, that's my hometown, and I always represent on this show with my LA Lakers hat, so that's all good. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, the Lakers better get it together. I've been waiting, you know, I got spoiled back in the 80s, and now it's been a long wait. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I mentioned to you off air, but I just want to reiterate for uh, listeners and viewers, you know, that I'm a big fan going back to the uh, really um, never underestimate the power of a woman because I was a DJ back then and throughout the 80s, and so Climax was always, you know, a fixture on my playlist, so it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. That was our very first uh, recording on Solar Records. Yeah, boy, that was a great way to start. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. Under the great Dick Gristy, who allowed us, really, he, he saw the vision and he allowed us to, you know, be us. And, uh, you know, we, it took a little time to really grow. But when we did, that's when we came up with um, the menopause and had our first hit. Right. Um, yeah, I want to get back to how you uh, got with Solar and all that. But first, Bernadette, I want to ask you, um, you know, when did you first get into music? Did you have a musical childhood? Did you have 
a musical family? What directed you uh, that way? Well, you know, I've always been a, a fan of all music. I'm growing up, I was such a loner kind of kid. So all I ever did was listen to music. And um, um, it just so happened that my mother remarried and my stepfather had a drum set. And he brought the drum set into the home and I started practicing on the drums. And um, uh, I started playing drums in church. And that's how what led me into really wanting to become a professional musician. And who were some of your early musical heroes or inspirations? Uh, Aretha Franklin, as everyone knows. Uh, you know, the, the old school people, the Sly Stones, the Aretha Franklins, the um, Isaac Hayes, all of that stuff. And you, even like Giordano and Sergio Mendez and, the, you know, all, all of that. I, I, there was no limit to the type of music that I listened to. You know, I loved all type of music. I would come home from school and um, listen to music. That's I really, really was a fan of ginger uh, John Joseph music. Do you remember what was your first album that you bought, or at least the first one that really kind of made you, uh, you know, just go wow? The first album that I purchased, I can't remember, but you know, I remember coming home and listening to remember the little old lady from Pasadena. <laughs> I don't know who did that song, but that was the first single that I brought, I purchased, and I listened to it over and over again. And I know it's kind of wild, but something about that record I, I really loved. That was a, that would be my first record that I purchased. I think I want to say little old lady from Pasadena. I want to say that was the Beach Boys. I think it was the Beach Boys. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was the Beach Boys. Yeah. <laughs> what about yeah, you? And, you know. Hmm? Oh, I'm, I was just going to uh, ask um, if you remember what was the first concert that you attended. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I, I Earth, Wind, and Fire blew my mind because back in those days they had a, a huge production. And back, I mean, a lot of groups that came out, you know, and I still kind of, I have that in me. Whenever I do a show, I wanted to do uh, a production because that's what I was used to seeing. But it was Earth, One of Fire, and then what else did I see? I didn't really go to too many concerts because there was um, so many people. Um, Earth, One of Fire, and then I believe it was, um, God, it was a festival at the Coliseum with um, Sly Stone and um, oh, God, what's the name of it? Just a lot of old school bands. And that, that, those were the only two that I can remember offhand. That sounds like the uh, 1977 Funk Fest. Um, yes. Who was on that show? Uh, Rick James, P Funk, um, Isley Brothers, and Rufus and Shaka Khan. No, that was a that was a little ad. That was afterwards. And this was another one with um, what's the what's that? The Barcades. It was the Barcades, Flying the Family Stone, uh, and that was earlier, like in the maybe in the seventies. Okay, good enough. Yeah, Rick James was more eighties and nineties. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I caught her from the fire at the Forum in seventy nine or seventy eight, somewhere around there. That's when when I got to see them. Um, so 
talk to me about your musical experiences before Climax was a reality. You know, how did you sort of get your feet wet and, you know, get into, you know, performing a bit and that kind of thing before Climax? Well, as I said, uh, my, um, I, I, I performed in church. That wasn't really my only music. Well, in the beginning, it was church, playing in church because my mom had married a preacher. So he was a reverend of a church, and then I started performing there, and then that led me to another church, and then there was uh, the little drummer girl who was a part of a hundred boys choir, and we would always win the competition because they would always give me a solo. Then, um, in junior high school, I put together a group called uh, Blue Ice, and that was with, um, you know, Michael Norfleet and Cornelius Mims, a lot of people who are very successful now. So that I was a part of that band, and then that led me to really just wanting to be a part of a unit like that. And um, I went to college, but I still had that burning desire to be a part of a band. So that's when I decided, you know what, there's such a void in music. Um, there are no women bands. Wouldn't that be great to put together an all-girl band? And that's what led me to form Climax. Was it difficult to... Oh, <laughs> let, me, let me say this. The, the love of music led me to um, perform in the band. I went to Compton High School. I went to Compton High School, and I was a part of the uh, marching band. So it led me, that's where I started to learn to read music, which I've kind of forgot, forgotten a lot of it. But I started reading music um, during that time. And then, you know, being a part of the band, uh, rehearsals and all of that really, really um, created more of a desire to be in music. So when you went out looking to form a girl band, was it difficult to find you know, girls that you meshed with personality-wise and also could, you know, carry carry their own with their instruments? Absolutely. It took a while, you know. I went through a series of a lot of girls. Um, it, I don't know what it is, but even if you notice, even today, um, there are no really no women bands. I mean, there's really no even women singing groups. I don't understand that. I would love to put one together, but... Um, it's difficult. I know the women, our genders are different a lot of times. I'm mean, more family oriented and um, more relationship oriented, you know, so it, it takes a back, music takes a back seat to all of those things. And it took me a very long time to find a unit that became Climax. I went through many, many girls, you know, a series of girls. And finally, ended, I ended up with, um, Lorena Shilkuli, uh, Robin Ryder, with a Lynn Malfi, and who else was there? We were pretty much the core of the group, and then Joyce Irby came into the group later after we had a record deal. So you got your record deal, I think, around 1980, is that right? I believe so, yes. So looking at the, uh, you know, what was out there in the music industry at that time, um, when I think of females who also play instruments, I think of Case to Heining in 79. Um, were they an influence at all or at least uh, a source of saying, hey, they can do it, we can do it? Say, say that again? 
that again? I was saying that around that time, late 70s, if you look at the music landscape at that time for females and females that played instruments, one could look at Taste of Honey that had a big hit, hit big in 79. I was wondering if they were a source of, you know, any inspiration as an example, hey, here's other women that are playing instruments and they're successful. Absolutely. It was um, Taste of Honey and it was also, because um, I, I was in high school during that time, I think I was in the 10th grade, and Taste of Honey uh, uh, was very popular. Patrice Russian was also a female musician that made me believe, you know, wow, girls can really do this. This is something that, Taste of Honey, absolutely. They were, they were, they were slamming back in those days, and they were much definitely an inspiration. And that was the first time a lot of, uh, uh, the, the general public had a chance to really see women of color on instruments. We had a girl on bass, a girl on guitar, and they were attractive. So that was um, that was a thing that you know opened the minds of people that this could really happen. It most certainly opened my mind. Do you think it also helped uh, get a record deal because you know the uh, powers that be saw that it was a success elsewhere? Yes, I do. I think it it became like oh, I'm sure that when when Mr. Griffey um you know got our tape and saw that we were all girls, he most definitely had reflections of Taste of Honey because they made it possible for people to see that girls could do this. So you know, it, it took a visionary like him to say, you know, I can make this work. I think that this these girls could be popular. And yeah, I do believe that. You also came out, I guess your first album was 81. So I think that was, I think you might've just come out ahead of uh, other female acts like Vanity Six or Mary Jane Girls. So you were kind of just ahead of that wave. Oh yeah. You know, and, and a funny story is that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they wrote, um, um, uh, what's the song Vanity Six did? Um, Nasty Girl? Um, Nasty Girl. They wrote that for us. And um, Big Griffey was like, none of my girls are going to be singing a song called Nasty Girls. <laughs> you know, that's my impression of Mr. Griffey. But yeah, they wrote that for us. And you know what? He was so in, uh, right. Because can you imagine? I mean, we're on tour now. I'm definitely on tour. And uh, you know, now we're mature, and can you imagine us having to get up there and sing Nasty Girl? So, whatever, all the decisions that he made for us was always geared towards the future and what our legacy would be all to come, you know? So, yeah, Nasty Girl, definitely. We were before Mary Jane Girls, and we were before uh, Vanity Sex. So, tell me, Bernadette. Um, you know, when, when, when you landed that record deal, how excited were you and, and, you know, what was it like doing that first record? You know, we were definitely excited, of course. Um, we were young, you know, we were a tight knit, um, group of girls, um, we went through a lot, you know, um, the struggles of trying to gather money together to, for rehearsals. You know, and then have a little of money left over to eat 
And, um, you know, we, we really had a great time. The memories of, of the core of the group before Joyce, Joyce Arby came into the group, because she, she didn't come until later, was very, very, um, in fact, I was talking to Lorene about it. It was very, very lovely and wonderful, because we had a lot of dreams and hopes. So when we finally got that record deal, we were like, we couldn't believe it. We were in shock. We were in shock for a very long time. And you, right after that, immediately, we went into the studio. So we didn't really have time to celebrate. Now, we m mentioned uh, the title cut, to me, by far, was the funkiest song. The rest of the album was kind of a little more R&B and a little disco influence. Um, and you had the Lakeside guys helping you out. So what was it like working with them? Um, it was good. It was good working with them. You know, we went into the studio and a lot of that stuff, you know, you know, back in the day, it was up to the producer on, you know, we weren't seasoned studio musicians at that time. We were, we were learning how to be really good live musicians. So in the beginning, a lot of, the, a lot of that stuff, other than if you remember, never underestimate the power of a woman. You know, they brought in their own musicians, musicians to perform all of those songs. You know, being a studio musician is a, a craft, uh, an art within itself. So um, uh, we didn't play it. We didn't perform on a lot of those songs. Music-wise, it was our voices. So it was good working with them, but we we weren't really happy with the direction that they were taking us, you know, because they were kind of male and they were writing songs geared towards uh, what males wanted to hear and what they wanted, you know, how they wanted their women to be. And we were quite the opposite. We were independent women, you know, who really wanted to make uh, make it on our own and be our be be our own women. So it took a while to get to that point. But working with them, you know, it was all good. It was all a learning experience, you know, and it made us into great writers and producers and independent um, uh, musicians. Yeah, on that record, I mean, that first track, especially All Fired Up, definitely sounds like a lakeside track. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of those, yeah. We really had no input other than, you know, um, we just, you know, we had to, we didn't know. When you go in the first time, you don't really know. You don't really have much control. You know, we, you know, we got our first check and all we wanted to do was go shopping. And then, you know, we were going to the studio and they would have things laid down and then we would sing. And then, you know, it was all good. You know, it didn't fare well. But um, we were in the process of learning. We were kids. So we were in the process of learning what the industry was about. And then as time went on, we gained more control of our own sound. Well, to me, the uh, second record, Girls Will Be Girls, was just a terrific album. I mean, you, it was just one of the best uh, funk R&B albums of that period, in my opinion, uh, from top to bottom. It just really smokes. Um, what can you tell us about creating that album? Well, same thing. You know, we were still learning, and uh, uh, Girls Will Be Girls, that album was a great album, but once again, we didn't have any control over our sound. You know, so we liked it. You know, we were, we were learning to, um, we were adapting to what was going on, but, but we, weren't, uh, we weren't very happy yet with the sound and the, the 
direction of where the music was going. Because we were so different than what they were, you know, um, than what the gentlemen were, the lyrics they were writing for us. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were appreciative, but um, we knew that there was, you know, much more work for us to do. And you had Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who we brought up already, but uh, both uh, them and uh, the Lakeside guys were, were helping out on this one. Well, when Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis came into the fold, that's when we they gave us much more. They gave us much more of a chance um, to become ourselves and uh, write more lyrics. They really used to love a lot of my tracks that I gave them. You know, Jimmy and Jim were a pleasure to work with because they they helped us create our sound. And they would talk to us and they would give us ideas and they would let us be us. And that's when you started to really, on that particular album, started to hear the evolution of the climax sound. You know, all turned out, that was a little bit more climax, you know. That was us kind of like having fun. And, you know, they were, what do you think, Bernadette? What do you think, Lorena? And they would they let us kind of be us. So working with them really helped shape our sound. Yeah, I'm looking at the tracks they did on that record. And that one you just mentioned, also The Man in My Life. And uh, Wild yeah. Girl, Wild Girls, really great funk track, too. Now, Wild Girls is when the beginning of it all you know i would i would put that in the same category as uh um, and then i'll pause uh, the same category as i'm um, meeting in a ladies room you're getting that woman thing i'm a wild girl and love is just the thing you know so it was kind of like pushing us in that in in, in that um direction of woman power so um, that was the beginning of it all right there. But that album didn't do as well as we'd like. Yeah, I think I'm surprised. That track should have been a bigger hit for sure, I think. I, I agree. I think the world was shocked. It was like, what? <laughs> wow, girl, love is just the same, same. I think people were kind of like, you know, it was kind of like um, part of the beginning of the journey of it all, you know, so... Um, it did what it was supposed to do because it opened up everybody's ears and uh, and hearts um, to uh, the next project that came up, which was um, which was a big hit, I believe. Yeah, you guys were about to blow up. Um, yes. What? Um, did, yes, it was a process. Did, did Did you guys go out and tour at all after the first two records, or did you wait for that third one? No, we didn't tour. There was really no demand for us. You know, we didn't tour until until um the meeting in the ladies' room album. That's when it was like, oh my god, you got a hit, and that's when we went on tour. Our first big tour. So leading up to that, though, Bernadette, um, you're 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 starting to really make your own presence in the studio. You're learning. You're 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 um, progressing. Uh, musically, production-wise, all that, songwriting-wise. What about the um, the look and style and image of the group? What were you aiming for? You know, um, that's a good question because I just had a conversation with someone about that. I love fashion. And um, 
we were all one um and we we knew that it was very important to be funky as far as the music was concerned but we always wanted to be ladies and look like ladies now granted we were young and we were learning you know how to dress what to wear you know how to wear our hair so we, we were 19 and 20 years old you know we were, we were young ladies so we always wanted to give off um just fashion you know uh, when i wrote when i talked about all the gianni versace and kenneth cole shoes that was because we were really wearing it at that time we were making money when that album hit and we were able to afford those fashions and we just were trying to just be fashion forward and give that look i think um you know um yes that's what i'll say about that well it started to change towards as time when when joyce came into the group she had a different uh, idea of the way she wanted things to be as far as the look is concerned and you know it, it became a struggle but i i continue to be me and you know the girls are uh you know we just we just had a lot of fun with it all so the breakthrough record being in lee's room came out in 84 um actually on, on the calendar that was two years uh, from the previous one, which was longer than the first and second record. We know that it had Men All Paws, Me and Lay's Room, I Miss You, and all these hits and it blew up. What can you tell us that you remember about the creation of, of that? Did you feel like magic was happening in the process? You know, I'm gonna tell you something, Scott. We knew it was do or die. And I think a, a lot of it was we had become so relaxed and we didn't, we really didn't have much faith in the system anymore at that point. We would go into the studio because the first two albums we were extra excited. Oh my God, we're going to have a hit record. It didn't happen. So the third album, we just had chilled. We chilled out a lot. And that's probably why the hit came because we weren't forcing it. We were just letting it just flow. And, uh, oh, we, one day, you know, Joyce Irby came into the studio and she gave me a track and she says, uh, see if you can come up with something for this track. And I sat down on the floor on my four track recorder and I wrote on the mineral pause. And um, that was the beginning of it all. And we, we had no clue. We had no clue. We, weren't, we had no expectations. And sometimes when you don't have expectations, wonderful things come. And we didn't, we didn't know. We just kind of did the song we were supposed to do and we just went on and lived our lives and then one day uh in the car we were hanging out going to get something to eat and we heard the mental pause on the radio and we lost our minds <laughs> you know we jumped out of the car in the middle of the street we could not believe it because that was the first time actually that we we heard the music on the radio all the other albums you know they got a little airplay, but I don't remember hearing any of them on the on the on the um on the radio until the menopause. It was over the Christmas holidays, and um, you know record company kind of shuts down for the holidays. And we we I think it was in like November, December. And by the time we came back in January, we had a hit record. 
yeah, I remember getting that 12 inch single, you know, for the first time and uh, wow, it was something else. Um, yes, it, it was great. And then the great Lil Silas. I don't know if you remember Lil Silas Jr. Lil Silas was responsible for a lot of, a lot of our success because he, when he heard the song and the music, we, you know, he would take me into the studio and we would do all these remixes. I mean, the mental pause, the meeting in the ladies' room, the records that you heard, they were really the remixes of the original. And that's when I would add a lot of the vocal things. I know I was looking good. You know, a lot of extra stuff I would add in. You know, and um, um, the, the project, you know, uh, uh, the success of that album really came from a lot of his remixes. Yeah, I could, I'm sure, in like some of the electronic percussive kind of sounds and, um, yes. and those ad libs that you mentioned, I mean, that gave it, you know, all the attitude and the feel that, that helped carry it to another level, I think. Yeah, and that was Steve Shockley. You know, we, we went in, um, Joyce Irby, Joyce Irby and myself, we went in with Steve Shockley, and um, he added a lot of those, Steve Shockley of Lakeside, he added a lot of those drum parts and uh, the guitar, the little, that little rhythm part at the end, that was all Steve Shockley. It was he, um, Joyce and I, uh, we were just in the studio rocking, and that's how we really formed and produced um, uh, the menopause. And then, of course, Lewis Silas Jr. got a hold of it, and he made it even a bigger hit. So that's when we realized, oh, my God, it's about to go down. It's about to go down, baby, because that's when um, this our sound. It was our sound. It was us doing it. It was our energy. It was our vision. It was our um, the way we talked to each other every day. You know, the vanity, the, you know, I know I was looking good. That's the way we would talk to each other, you know. And um, we were just being ourselves at that point. We had no one else directing us and telling us what to do. We were just allowed to be us. And that's when that album and our uh, climax really became, we created our own sound. Every group, every band, because right now you hear a lot of groups, they sound alike and it's got, all right, you're only as good as your next single because you don't really have a sound of your own. But that's, that is when we created our own sound during that record. Yeah, at the time, uh, no pun intended, the time, but, um, you know, if someone asked me to explain what Climax was, I might have said, oh, they're kind of like a female version of the time, uh, you know, of more stay in the time. And except for maybe a little more, uh, electro funk element and a little more pop on some of the slower stuff, but attitude wise and you know that whole thing, I, I just felt like. And so I'm wondering if that uh, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam influence uh, was a sort of a connective tissue between that comparison. More than anybody, they were without Jimmy and Terry. I'm not quite sure we would have been as confident as we were. They, they were the ones who told us to be ourselves. They put it like, you remind us a lot of Moore's Day. They used to say that, like, you're like the female Moore's Day. Because I used to talk a lot of crap like Morris, and, you know, we kind of favor a little bit. And um, they were the ones who would tell me, be you, be that, be all of that. So it was Jimmy and Terry who influenced me, I can say, to just 
is be a personality and to be fun with it. And, you know, you know, I really don't have an issue with um, what people say. So therefore, I was able to just have fun and just uh, say the things that I normally say on record, you know, and it became hit. So, yeah, Jimmy and Terry were the number one fans. They were the number one uh, um, inspiration in becoming climax. And, you know, let me add something. You know, let me set the record straight. We were the first group that Jimmy and Terry ever recorded outside of the time and with Prince. When I was in the studio with them, when Prince called and fired them, because he didn't want them to um, um, produce other acts. And when he found out they were sneaking away and they were in the studio with Climax, he fired them. So, you know, and that was, you know, fate is wonderful. Isn't it wonderful? Because that left them on their way and it helped us become who we were. So it was a beautiful thing. I've always heard they always, they commonly say it was the SOS band, but you're saying it was actually you guys? Yeah, I, I, the SOS band came. You know, it could have been during the same time, but I think, I believe we were the first band that they uh, that they recorded outside of, of um, the time and outside of dealing with Prince. You know, that's my recollection. Now, maybe I could be wrong. I've been wrong once before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I, I think I, I, I believe that because I was there when Prince fired them, and uh, I believe we were their first act. Dick, Dick Griffey gave um, gave them their first opportunity to uh, record. I, I do believe it was Dick, and then after that, I think the SOS band, you know, came. Now I could be wrong. So, well. In any case, it certainly was right in that time frame. And, you know, to me, I mean, I think if you're going to try to emulate any group of that era, there's no better one to do than the time because they were just fantastic. So, um, you know, they were, we, we, we were, we were sort of a female time because you had this individual, you know, and, and I know Morris, Morris and I are friends. But we were very similar. Morris was a drummer. I was a drummer. Morris was a personality. I am a personality. And um, it, it was sort of like a female time, if you kind of look at it. You know, and so by looking at the time and going, oh, wow, okay, okay. So I'm, I'm going to talk crap too. I'm going to get up and talk about what I like to do and who I am and how fierce I am. So we did kind of pattern ourselves a little bit without thinking twice about it or without copying. Um, we, we, I think we sort of patterned ourselves behind them. And that's the direction that Jimmy and Terry took us in. But it was just so fresh and fun coming from a female perspective with that. Um, oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, I just, um, we definitely left an impression. I just saw the second version of our, um, of our parody of us on Saturday Night Live. You know, so we left an impression, the talking, and the here comes by somebody singing. Not No girl group, nobody was doing that. Nobody was talking crap. And then you come a girl, another girl, she would sing. And then you come the girl again, I'm going to talk a little crap. It was unique, you know. And I think that's why people were like, oh, my God, 
you know, people really enjoyed that, especially women. It was like we were saying the things that women wanted to hear. I know I was looking good. Who, what woman doesn't pick that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you get ready to go out and you beat your face, it takes us about an hour to beat your face. You know, you do your hair. You know, and you get your clothes, you, you've already laid your clothes out the night before. So you know you're going to be looking good when you go into the club. So I was just pretty much saying the things that women feel. So when you were making the uh, the album, uh, Bernadette, did, did menopause come first in the recording process or being in the ladies' room? Um, menopause. The men all pause, you know, me being, you know, this, with this quirky sense of humor. I wrote that. Um, Joyce gave me the track. I wrote it. And then, you know, the funny thing about it was when we presented it to Dick Griffey, the president of the company, to take a listen to because he would have us in these meetings every other week or once a month. We would talk about what we were doing and the progress and what's going on with the band. And we played the mental part for him. And he looked at us and he was like, I had to do my Dick Griffey impression. No group of mine is ever going to sing a song called The Menopause. And we were like, no, it's the men all pause when I walked into the room. So he kind of giggled and he got it. He got it. He was like, oh, okay. And um, that's when he put us in the studio with uh, Dick, uh, with um, uh, um, Lakeside Steve Shockley. You know, we didn't want to go back in with the previous people we were working with. So he thought Steve Shockley would be great, and he was right. Steve brought the song alive. You know, and we, you know, we did we did it together. But Steve, he made it happen. I see. Also on this record, uh, for the first time, the Callaways came in from uh, Midnight Star and did some work with you guys. Yeah. They had blown up a little before that with their No Parking on the Dance Floor uh, record. So, uh, and and they were involved in being in the ladies' room. So what, what was it like working with them? You know, they had just come off. You know, we were all kids struggling together, passing each other in the solar offices. Hi, hi, how you doing? Everything's great. And all of a sudden, Lakeside got a hit. Midnight Star got a hit. Everybody was getting hit, so we were still on the on the sidelines. So they had just came off of um meeting and they had just came off of No Parking on the Dance Floor, which was a huge hit. And so, um the Cowboy Boys, you know, they were great writers and they presented uh meeting in the ladies' room to Dick Griffey. And Louis Silas took me in the studio after hearing the track and I added all the talking parts and some of the vocal arrangements. And um, it became a huge hit. So he was on the men all pause first, the men all pause first, and then I came meeting in the ladies' room. That was the second second biggest hit. It was a, it was a perfect follow up. I mean, it kind of continued this the the climax story in a way. Listen, it it was a perfect you know. It was the journey was beautiful because it was a perfect. It all kind of fell into place, you know. It was the perfect follow up, and then the next song, "I Miss You." Oh my goodness, 
when Lynn Mulvey wrote that song, you know, which has a great story behind it, that I won't go into that. But when Lynn Mulvey wrote that song, we knew it was a hit immediately. And um, Marina was supposed to sing the vocals, but she didn't make it to the studio until Joyce sang the vocals. And that song became a huge pop hit, and we were like, it was over then. We, we were gone. Yeah, I mean, I was, it was a great song, but I was surprised that it became such a crossover sensation. And I mean, it was taking you guys, it took you guys to a whole other audience. Uh, entirely new audience. And uh, wow, it was beautiful to see, to see a dream come true. You know, I mean, you're talking about kids, girls, you know, we created history. I'll say we created history, history, mm -hmm. however you want to say it, we created history. And if you really take the time and look, what other girl band has there been? None, none. And I really think that we should be praised a little bit more because of that. You know, but it's such a male-oriented world that no one's taken the time to really look at that. But we, we did something that was exceptional. Absolutely. Um so tell me about when you first went out on tour and supported this record. What was that like? Oh, my goodness. Once again, it was a new experience. Uh, we didn't know what to expect, you know. Um, uh, we, you know, I went on the road with about eight uh, bags of clothes, uh, suitcases of clothes. I didn't, we didn't know what to expect. It was great. It was great. It was a great experience, and we... We did, we turned it out. Every show, we just had a great time because I think people had never seen anything like that. So they enjoyed it. And, you know, during that time, all the songs were hits. So we couldn't really go wrong. You know, we would, uh, we, we just had a, a fun time on the road. I can't really think of any negative times that we had. I mean, you know, of course, being in a band, I mean, uh, of course, being in a band of girls, you know, you have your issues. But we had the best time. I, we went out with the Midnight Star. We did some shows with um, um, Lakeside, I believe. We did some shows with um, um, SOS. We did, we did a lot of shows with a lot of different groups. And um, we had a great time. Did, did you already feel like you had your, your stage presence together? Or did you have to do a lot of rehearsing and do any um, sort of choreography training and that kind of stuff? We thought we were rock stars. We didn't really do a lot of choreography. You know, we were we were patterning ourselves to the to the uh, Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones don't do choreography, so we're not gonna. We don't need to do that. We're a band. You know, that was our thing. So they just, um, you know, by my, you know, I have to say, by my sheer energy of just getting out there and and, and just having fun and the personality. Um, that that did it for us more, you know, and, and then we followed it up with our these hit songs. So no, we didn't do a lot of choreography. We didn't do a lot. We just kind of we winged it. Were, were some of the uh, Lakeside guys or other uh, guys from Solar a little protective of of you of you on the road because it was your first time out? You're a, a, a female group on the road. How did that go? You know, let's, let's, 
I'm going to be real for one second. I don't know. The answer to your question is, is no. And I think that, um, I think that a lot of the guys uh, on the label didn't really get us. You know, I think, it, it, let me just say it like this. Here you are, you're signed to this label, you're a group of guys, uh, you've been together uh, for the last 20 years, 15 years, trying to get a record deal. You got a record deal, there's no there's no head record yet. And then Dick Griffey goes and signs a girl band, and he's putting all this energy into this band. So I think it was a little bit of a, you know, like most groups have, you know, a little bit of, uh, of uh, you know, my team is here, my team is over there. So no one, we, we no one really protected us. We had security though. I, I made sure that we went on the road. And one of my thing is we have to have security. So we had security. Um, so, but the answer to your question would be no. Everybody was kind of in their own individual camps. But you handled your business and fended for yourself just fine, sounds like. Yeah, we handled our business, and um, we made it through. Hey, we made it through. But as I look back, I can just remember everybody kind of giving us the look like, okay, these girls can't even really play. You know, we were, you know, we were young, and we were developing. And, you know, could we play? Yeah, we could play. But we had to, there was a lot we still needed to learn. So I think it was just the, the individual camps and nobody really kind of uh, stepped over their boundaries. Did you enjoy doing the uh, music videos? Yeah. Yeah, that's when it all came alive. You know, the vision, the vision came alive at that point. Because um, before then, we were just um, uh, voices and music. And then when videos came along, we were visual. And people had a chance to see the zaniness and the differentness. And, you know, the black women, you know, uh, of course, men, it was a mixed group, you know. But the women, people had a chance to really see what was going on. And, yeah, we had a lot of fun with the videos. My personality had a chance to grow with the visuals because I was able to do uh, the facial expressions and have, you know, and I'm a, I'm a little bit of a ham when it comes to uh, um, visuals and, you know, when the cameras come on, I love to put on and, and do the doggone thing. So, yeah, I think that's, that's when Climax became bigger than life. And what about TV? Did, did you do a lot of TV appearances? Is there any that stand out, like, for whatever reason? Oh, we did Soul Train four or five times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. TV, I mean, if you go back and look at all the old videos, once again, people had a chance. To, it was kind of like a little bit of a shock, you know, and people were... Uh, Hoping that they were, they were hoping that we were, we became winners because it was so unusual to see girls doing that. So women were like, "Oh my God, I can relate to it." And little girls, you know, I remember when I was when I was like uh, a kid growing up, and I saw the Carol Burnett show for the first time, and um, I saw a, a a black woman 
uh, as one of the backup dancers for the Carol Burnett show. And I remember crying because that's when I realized it was all possible. It was possible to do something, you know, to be on television, to be of anything, you know, when you are put on this earth to be creative, uh, it's wonderful to see um, people being creative and who look like you. So I'm sure that we were an, an inspiration to a lot of young girls and a lot of women, you know, to see, oh God, there's no limit to what you can possibly do. So yeah, I, I believe that we, um, man, I think that we, we created something that was very, very, very powerful. No doubt, I'm sure there were a lot of uh, little girls asking for guitars around the mid-80s or basses or whatever, thanks to Climax. Oh, yes. And then the music is so timeless, Scott, that when I perform, you know, I, when I look into the audience and afterwards when I meet the people, you got grandmothers, you got the mothers, and then you have their children at the shows. Because the music is still so timeless and still so relevant, it's still so powerful. You know, that when, when, when people, or little girls, or she, hear it, you can still recite it because it's still, you know, it's still uh, prevalent today and relevant today. Looking back to the uh, peak era of, of Climax, is there one or two shows in particular that stand out as a prominent memory for you and, and why? The San Diego Jazz Festival. Um, now that you've allowed me to reflect, I remember going to that concert. Every year there would be the San Diego. Do you remember that? No, I grew up in L.A. I don't remember the San Diego's event. Okay. Every year there would be the San Diego Jazz Festival. And all these different acts would perform in San Diego. Um, San Diego's, what, about 100 miles from L.A., something like that. So we would, you know, me and a group of friends, we would jump in the, you know, my Camaro, and we would go to the San Diego Jazz Festival and hang out. I would get a, a hotel room in La Jolla on the beach. And we would make a weekend of it. And it was such a huge festival, you know, and the memories uh, were so great that, uh, I, you know, I always wanted to play the jazz festival. So when we did play the San Diego Jazz Festival with Luther Vandross and a whole bunch of other um, acts, I was blown away. That was a memory. Another memory would be, what sticks out in my mind. Um, Mm. Playing a, playing a, a, right now, playing a show on the beach in Miami. I can't remember what, which one that was, but, you know, give me a little time to think. I'm sure I have many, many memories. All right. If something pops in your head, we can circle back. Um, I'll just, I'll just blurt it out. I'll blurt <laughs> it out. <laughs>